Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 1st, 2022. I'm talking to you, as always, from San Francisco, where it all happens, the heart of the technology revolution. It doesn't look, though, in first day of August as if everything is all good on the tech front, especially when it comes to startups. Excellent piece in today's Financial Times by my old friend Richard Waters about venture capital's silent crash when the tech boom met reality. Uh, VC money is kind of down the pipe. So the stock market crash of the last few months is being played out now when it comes to funding startups. Uh, the amount of money the FT reminds us getting pumped into startups skyrocketed in 2021 and in the first part of this year. And now it seems to be crashing. Um, lots of uh, startups are getting huge amounts of money, including Robinhood, a crypto platform, $2.4 billion in February of this year. One wonders, though, how or what the exit stretches will be on these startups. Um, um, there's a, a long history of money being made dramatically on the startup front, including Uber and WeWork and Theranos. Some of it was slightly fraudulent. But it seems as if the market and perhaps the media has caught up with startup land. Um, it's a new book out today, Exit Path, How to Win the Startup Game, with my guest, Turaj Parang. Turaj, you are talking to me from just down the peninsula. Um, are you worried, Turaj, uh, as a venture capitalist, uh, as an entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, are you worried about venture capital's silent crash in terms of uh, the exit strategy for yourself and many other entrepreneurs? Hi, Andrew. Yes, it's great to be on the show. Um, you know, I'm, uh, you know I've, I have had the benefit of being around the block a couple of times. I've been in the Silicon Valley area since the late 90s. And, uh, you know, uh, these ups and downs happen. Uh, you know, when the dot-com crash happened in 2000, everyone thought that the game was over for startups. Then in 2008, 2009, Great Recession. <laughs> uh, that was also a lot of doom and gloom. And we had, you know, uh, memos going around about uh, rest in peace, good times, right? So uh, the yeah, just a part of business. You, you have ups and downs. Uh, the beauty of early stage investing, actually, which is the area that I mostly focus on, is that you're a bit insulated from uh, from the cyclical nature of the stock market. Um, that's because early stage investors have a longer term horizon, so they can ride out um, some of these ups and downs better. So what is the core wisdom, Turaj? Um of, of your book that's out today, Exit Path, How to Win the Startup Endgame. The exit strategy, of course, or the traditional exit strategy in Silicon Valley is an IPO, although many companies, many startups are actually acquired by big tech companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple. When people found a company, of course, they're passionate and they're excited, but there has to be an end goal. What should it be? Right. Yes. And, you know, for I think for the longest time, entrepreneurs have been pursuing IPOs almost single mindedly. At least that's what I did with my first startup. 
uh, Jackster in 2005. We started it. We hit a viral growth curve. Uh, we were growing gangbusters. We had venture capitalists, uh, all the top tier investors involved with us. And we were we thought that we were going to be a billion dollar IPO. So when uh, we hit that great recession, uh, <laughs> it was time to reevaluate and we, we desperately needed to sell our startup. And it was too late. Uh, you need time to prepare and execute on an exit strategy through an acquisition. And, uh, you know, all the other competitors we had in this space got significant uh, outcomes. And we didn't. We, we had to literally sell for pennies on the dollar. Uh, so that was a, a kind of awakening for me. Um, I tried to reverse course with my next startup and got radically different results. That was webs.com. And within a span of two years, we were able to uh, to sell that startup to a strategic buyer, Vistaprint, uh, at a premium valuation. Um, and all it came down to uh, was preparation and uh, having a strategy and implementing it over time and building relationships. So things that you don't necessarily focus on when you're single-mindedly focused on that IPO. And the statistics show that there are actually 30 acquisitions for every IPO each year. So it's kind of lopsided how much effort goes into pursuing an IPO versus um, the strategic acquisition path. Torres, when you look at the number of startups, the tens, hundreds of thousands of startups, and the number that actually either IPO or even get acquired, isn't it rather like doing the lottery? Well, uh, the odds are significantly stacked against entrepreneurs for sure. Uh, you know, the statistics basically tell you that uh, majority of startups don't return the money invested in them. In fact, after five years, the majority of them don't exist anymore. So yes, uh, it's significantly tough odds. Now, lottery is not the right way to frame it because lottery is a blind gamble. In, in startup world, you can actually, by having a realistic assessment of your chances, you can actually tilt those odds in your favor. You have agency, whereas in lottery, you really don't have agency. And that's that's a big distinguishing factor. And that's what I want to, <laughs> with this book to bring back the, the amount of agency and control people can have over the fate of their startups if they plan early enough. Are you concerned, Tarash, with the way in which the zeitgeist has shifted dramatically. You talked about arriving in Silicon Valley in the late 90s when everyone believed in technology. Today, we've done many shows on this. The zeitgeist has shifted, and, and, and partly because of companies like WeWork, which has crashed, Theranos, which seems to be a criminal thaw, uh, fraud, Uber, which um, has had a, a long history of very, very bad public relations. Are you concerned that the the public and the media in general has turned against technology and tech startups? Well, some good shows came out of those. Uh, so um, I, I think the zeitgeist uh, is uh, is an evolving concept. I mean, we, we have technology to thank for the uh, for a lot of advances we see around us. You know, we are pretty much inseparable from our iPhones and the apps on them at this point. My kids can't even exist a day without their phones and iPads. <laughs> And, uh, you know, everything is now becoming revolutionized by technology. It's just you would be hard pressed to to think of an industry that is not impacted by technology. So um, 
uh, as much as we may have these poster childs of uh, excessive uh, exuberance or things like that, I think there are so many other entrepreneurs out there that are doing phenomenal work. They are creating new drug discoveries. They are building new ways to fight cancer. They are finding new ways to connect people, bring internet to uh, underdeveloped countries. There, there's just so much opportunity. We, we just barely scratched the surface with software selling the world now ai is going to be eating the world and i think the next evolution of that is going to be even robotics which is going to transform uh the way uh, we live and in our cities and hopefully improve life for everybody uh so so i'm very bullish on technology as you can see and i feel like it is just an enabler of a lot of potential for us and a lot of these startups have that potential in them I want to come back to AI and talk about your your day job and the role of AI, but let's talk about innovation and big tech. We did a show earlier this, or actually last week, with an Oxford professor, Ariel Ezrachi, um, the co-author of a book called How Big Tech Barons Smash Innovation and How to Strike Back. Do you think that the winner-take-all nature of the Silicon Valley economy, the fact that you have a tiny group of enormously powerful multi-trillion dollar companies like Apple and Google and Amazon and Microsoft. Are these friends and or foes of the startup community? Of course, they, they could end up being the buyer, but they're also, at least according uh, to Ezrachi, who's a very prominent and influential and respected uh, professor of economics, they're also acting against innovation. These big tech companies are, are bent on crushing anything that um, that, uh, that compete with their, uh, with their ideas, their technologies, the startups launch within themselves. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, you know, at some point, you know, we thought Yahoo was crushing everyone and then Google came around. And I think these, again, these technology uh, platforms go through their own evolutionary cycles. And if they become too complacent and and uh, less innovative and they try to act like a monopolist, I feel like that in, it's inherent in the nature of technology and disruption that they will be disrupted. Smart ones actually acquire companies that can continue to bring in that spirit, that innovative spirit and the new uh, basically frontiers to them and expand beyond that. I, I feel like Google, the Alphabet platform has has done that in many ways. Um, uh, you know, they have Waymo, they have, uh, they have their, their, um, they're funding a lot of different diverse initiatives. It's not just a search engine anymore. So um, yes, there is a risk, of course, uh, you know, Horkheimer Adorno in like <laughs> from the Frankfurt School, I studied philosophy. So I, I see a lot of these these thoughts and trends back in uh, in my philo undergrad philosophy studies as well. They, they talk about the dialectic of enlightenment, right? Who uh, even enlightenment thinking itself can become uh, usurped and become authoritarian. So it, it is it is part of our, I guess, human nature. But the beauty of technology is that it it has proven over and over again to be able to break those monopolies and and uh, form new possibilities. So. Again, I'm optimistic, but yes, it's uh, it is important to have a dose of uh, skepticism about any any company that becomes too big. What's your position, Toraj, as an investor and the author of Exit Path on 
regulation. Lena Khan, the new head of the FCC, has been quite outspoken, in particular blocking a new a new uh, acquisition from Facebook. Facebook, of course, did exactly what you said, acquiring companies like uh, Instagram to build itself. Do you think that regulators uh, are helpful to startup entrepreneurs in terms of making sure that the playing field is level? It's, uh, I mean, that's what we want the regulators to do. Uh, we want them to, to create the conditions for competition and for a, for a healthy market, right? That, that's their, their mandate. Uh, that's what they're there to do. Whether or not they accomplish that uh, really depends on how much data are they taking into consideration. I mean, we have a body of antitrust law and other, uh, you know, thoughts about how to measure someone's dominance in a market and whether they're they're having too much market power or not of course technology makes it harder to assess that but i think that the the right frameworks are in place it just needs to be implemented with the right level of data and um, we need smart people in those seats to be able to make those assessments it's really hard it's a hard job it's not easy you're not answering my question though are you sympathetic to lena khan or not do you believe that she is a friend or a foe of startup entrepreneurs like yourself? Uh, personally, I have no idea, but I think the position that she holds can be a friendly position. I'm curious, you, we, we, oh, I touched on Facebook. Facebook, of course, is in the business now of reinventing itself, um, renamed itself Meta. We did a show last week on the Metaverse with the new author, Matthew Ball. As somebody who's interested in the in the startup ecosystem, do you think the metaverse is for real or is it just hype? Um, I, I think the truth is somewhere in between. Uh, you know, to to have one virtual reality to conquer them all is probably a very ambitious, audacious goal. <laughs> um, whether or not we will at some point. Uh, come in and out of virtual spaces where we think that uh, certain things could be better done in a virtual community. Like in a way, you know, our, our conversation right now, it's not happening in physical space, right? So um, could could we foresee the future where that happens? Sure. Whether people will be, be like ready player one <laughs> and just plug into a virtual space and don't leave uh uh, their home for days, uh, etc. I think that to me is a science fiction. Um, uh, I think we are social animals. We we enjoy being out there. We enjoy being in the real world. And but there are function things you could do: play certain games, to perhaps have certain business functions uh, with augmented reality and virtual reality. So I, I feel like it's somewhere in between. Uh, I think the hype is a bit exaggerated there. Uh, you mentioned science fiction. Um, you are the chief operating officer of your day job at Serve Robotics. Uh, the goal is to become the first autonomous vehicle company to commercially launch level four self-driving robots. We've done many shows on AI. We did one earlier uh, in, in July with Toby Walsh, very influential AI thinker, researcher, uh, has a new book out, Machines Behaving Badly, The Morality of AI. Is AI, um, is AI, uh, Toraj, 
Is this really where the action is? It clearly, in your mind, it is given your role at Serve Robotics. Well, I, I feel like uh, the, we have we are at the cusp of a convergence of uh, several different technologies. So one is artificial intelligence, AI. The other one is sensors and uh, basically hardware. Uh, that have made significant progress. Uh, we also have ubiquitous connect broadband connectivity. So when you put all these things together, it creates for a very interesting space for innovation. And what we do at my company, Serve Robotics, is that we have these autonomous robots that go on the sidewalks and do food delivery as well as delivery of groceries and other things. Anything that a robot, like a, that's a shopping cart size robot on the sidewalk can do. We believe in the tremendous potential of robotics to really help uh, unleash new ways of delivering. There is no point that a two-pound burrito needs to be delivered in a two-ton car, as we like to say. And so there are a lot of things we do very inefficiently. We may not even have enough human labor force um, to satisfy the demand. Several businesses, for instance, that we are talking with, uh, national, international brands, they have had actually... a uh, a growth uh, friction, uh, their growth has been stopped because of lack of labor to do certain delivery for them, for instance. Uh, so, uh, you know, um, there are things that we can leverage in AI and robotics that can be very much uh, a support to what humans want to achieve and accomplish. The role of labor, though, is really important with AI. Uh, you, you're in the business of creating these self-driving robots that will deliver food and other goods. But there are people who have historically done these jobs. Um, are you concerned that AI, your company and other companies, might be making much, um, much basic human labor redundant? What has happened throughout history, right? When, whenever new technology has come, there has been initially some upskilling involved and some uh, labor displacement involved but eventually that technology has enabled more jobs like a classic example is the atms uh, right when the atm machines came a lot of folks thought that the the job of tellers would disappear but what happened actually was because of the uh, prevalence of atms and how how user-friendly they were um, more branches were created, actually more teller jobs were created, but they were doing different things. They weren't just handing out cash to people. They were actually serving a different function, more of a customer support function, more higher, uh, higher level things than just counting money and handing it out to people. So um, what, what happens with automation is that it unleashes, it removes some inefficiencies and thereby creates more efficiency. So in our case in particular, a lot of small businesses have been suffering because they can't get access to fast, uh, affordable delivery right now. Uh, so a lot of people are not mixing those orders. So we actually help small businesses thrive when we bring this low cost um, delivery service and make that available. Like most entrepreneurs, you seem to be profoundly sunny, optimistic. Is there anything you worry about in this disruptive tech uh, ecosystem, the one you live in, in, in Silicon Valley? Are there any industries that keep you awake at night in terms of the consequences of today's technological revolution? 
You know, I, I think, you know, technology is like a tool uh, and in the hands of the wrong people, uh, uh, that tool can be misused. So I, I do worry about the power that any of our technologies as we're building, AI in particular, in the hands of the wrong government, the wrong actors, what it can do. Uh, I believe that we we need to always, you know, we can't stop innovation from because of fear. We just have to have enough safeguards, constraints around it to ensure that um, uh, those bad bad consequences don't come to fruition, right? Um, so um, overall optimistic, but I, I also pride myself in being a realist. Uh, and I, I, I always want to make sure that, you know, um, that optimism is not just uh, uh, unfounded, right? So, so um, this the concept of optimism actually brings me to an interesting point in my book, which is uh, the optimism that entrepreneurs have about their own startups. Um, so, uh, when I um, when I surveyed last year a number of founders and entrepreneurs I know about, hey, what do you think is the chances of uh, your own startup succeeding? Uh, their, their response uh, uh, was, you know, they were pretty much certain that, that that would happen. But when I asked them, what is the average success rate for any startup? They were saying it's somewhere between zero to 25%. So that disconnect uh, does trouble me as an entrepreneur because we don't take uh, enough uh, action to uh, correct for the consequences or, or have actually a realistic uh, uh, picture of the future. Uh, when we don't think some of these statistics ap apply to us. So, yes, I, I, I do believe firmly that our optimism should be grounded in reality. Although, Toraj, that disconnect is probably necessary because if any startup entrepreneur did the research, they would probably choose not to do a startup because, as you say, the vast majority of them fail. So it really requires the crazy, the believers. It's a form of religion, for better or worse, isn't it? It's well, if they had a gambler mindset, they wouldn't do it because if you're just playing the odds, but if they believe in their own agency and they believe that there are things they can do about the future that can tilt the odds in their favor, then, then you go out of the gambler and, and you become actually an agent. <laughs> and, and so, so I, I, I think they are compatible, but there is a nuance there so that your optimism has to be uh, you know, grounded in reality, and and you are basically taking actions that are mitigating against the risk that you are facing. For instance, creating options for yourself. Right? Um, if you have several options, and and you keep opening up those doors as you go along a certain like your plan A, uh, but you have also plan Bs and C. You you de-risk the situation for yourself. You actually create value by having optionality. Did a show earlier today with a prominent um, environmentalist, David Victor, co-authoring Fixing the Climate, Stretches for an Uncertain World. Uh, Victor is quite optimistic about the way in which tech and business can confront and solve the environmental crisis. You had an interesting tweet earlier uh, showing some hotels from Marriott and Hampton and Doubletree. Do you believe that um, capitalism and particularly startups can fix today's environmental crisis? Victor does. This, not everyone is on the same page here. Do you believe that perhaps the most promising area indeed in 
in the startup economy is all all uh, all things connected with energy the environment yeah uh that is such a good question and you know uh it takes me back to Econ 101. I was a philosophy major, but I also studied economics because I wanted to hedge my risk. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, this is a collective action problem. No one person, no one country alone could do this, could save the environment. So we need that global collective action. We need to be a part of a global movement that everyone pulls in the right direction, in the same direction to save the climate. And unfortunately, uh, you know, capitalism in and of itself would not be sufficient. You, you do need to have uh, a much bigger societal movement to uh, to help. Now, capitalism can fuel technologies, innovation that can be a tool to accelerate. But the will of the people <laughs> needs to be there. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, it's not one or the other. I feel like they are together because even if you had the collective will, and have the underlying technology, you couldn't get there either. So they, they, they need to complement each other. Torres, we had my old friend Pablos Holman on the show, a uh, very influential deep futurist. Uh, and he reminded us, message from his deep future, we need humans to fix things. It sounds to me like you and Pablos are on the same page when it comes to agency. High tech, however sophisticated, whether it's AI or the metaverse or crypto or any of these new technologies, which are in many ways science fiction, still needs humans to implement, to develop, to innovate. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, AI doesn't yet have desires of its own. It's, it only has the desires that we give it. Uh, so uh, we are the ultimate agents. Uh, and so we do need to... Uh, we need, do need to have that collective will to do good. And I, I feel like you know, part of what I also advocate, we need to teach philosophy at a much younger age uh, than we do. We don't, we don't even make it a requirement in college. I feel like we do need to have a strong ethical core and belief in what we do uh, and, and uh, take actions accordingly. And so, yes, uh, humans front and center and, uh, you know, what can we do to save humanity, save our environment? Um, these are great questions, but we need to ask the questions and we need to be aware of them at a much younger age. What about the morality, the philosophy behind exit strategies? You've written a book, Exit Path, How to Win the Startup Game. Uh, you had an interesting tweet suggesting that uh, uh, Black Widow, a fictional character, shows everyone how you make an exit. But... Are there some exits which are more moral than others, Turaj? Should there be exits that we're wary of, for example? I mean, would you sell your company to a, a, a morally compromised one like Uber, for example? Well, you know, um, the, the, um, the, 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 I believe that every startup entrepreneur actually starts with a mission. It's not just a purely financially driven decision. It is a mission driven decision to start a startup and, and they have a goal. And I feel that folks need to remind themselves of what that mission is and always look at what can best achieve that mission. Right. So, um, uh, and, and a lot of times, that mission can be best accomplished in combination with this bigger 
a partner, strategic partner. Now it could be a partnership, it could be a joint venture. It doesn't have to necessarily be an acquisition, but but sometimes it's an acquisition where the resources of that bigger partner can help the startup achieve what it intended to achieve. So, you know, I talk about it in the book, but I, I feel like being a missionary uh, is fairly compatible with being somebody who who is actually willing to sell their startup. Um, can you make more bad decisions? Can, uh, absolutely. Can, can you make morally compromised one? Absolutely. So you need to actually take all those inputs in. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, so there have been startups I've been involved with that have taken a lower valuation in return for keeping the team together. Um, uh, for them, you know, uh, having uh, future career opportunities for their team was more important than financial return, for instance. So there are all sorts of moral judgments get made in these partnership or acquisition decisions. And each team really needs to stay true to what their core belief and core values are. Uh, Turej, uh, you mentioned complex moral decisions. Um, you also mentioned you studied philosophy, the Marcuse and Adorno, uh, the Frankfurt School in college. So you're a, you're someone well attuned, well versed, literate in moral philosophy. What's the trickiest moral philosophical dilemma you've had as a startup entrepreneur? Um, well, you know, I, I think a lot of uh, the dilemmas that I startups face is it's the human relationships, right? Um, it's uh, how do you treat your employees? How do you create opportunities for your team? Um, what uh, what sort of work environment do you want to create? Do you really work people uh, to the maximum because of your mission, or do you do you sacrifice a little bit of the mission so people can have a work life balance, right? And, and sometimes, you know, some of these dilemmas can be resolved if you have a longer term horizon. You're not just looking at the, the next quarter or the next month or the next board meeting. Um, so, um, you know, some of those have been, uh, of course, then th there is also, you know, how do you de deal with your customers, right? Do you, uh, what's the fair and transparent way? Right, to, but, I, but uh, my question was you, I, 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 I take all these points, but did you have, do you have an example of one which is tricky where, Clearly, there was upside um, in economic terms for a decision that may have also been morally compromised. Um, you know, I, the, the toughest one I can think of right now is my first startup when we had to lay off employees in order to extend our runway. <laughs> Very similar to what a lot of startups have to do today, um, because that's right. what their Given investors the are telling them. VC silent crash, there's not a lot of money now coming from the VC spigot. Right. Right. And, and that was that was really tough and gut wrenching and kind of then trying to decide, OK, which of these employees do you let go? All right. We had, for instance, employees who were um, uh, on H1B visas or they were, uh, you know, they were not uh, green card holders. So they, they would actually have to be have to move the, uh, out of the U.S. They, their, their family would have to be uprooted. So there were really tough decisions to make um, in a situation like that. And what, what I hope is that very few startups find themselves in that situation. But unfortunately, external macroeconomic conditions bring these things upon us. And so we need to be prepared and we need to kind of have a, have a good moral compass to deal with those and, and, and make peace with those decisions that we make. So uh, to me, the, again, the personal decisions are always the most difficult, morally gut-wrenching one. 
You have a new book out, uh, Toraj. I think it's the first book um, on exits. Uh, you quote um, uh, or you retweet a, a quote from Hannah Arendt, another figure associated with the Frankfurt School. She wrote, writing is an integral par- part of the process of understanding. Did the writing of this book, um, Exit Path, did it help you as an entrepreneur learn stuff that entrepreneurs wouldn't learn unless they wrote a book? It, for me, it did. Uh, now, I can't speak for other entrepreneurs, but for me, it was really eye-opening. It made me a student of my own art, if I if I can put it that way. Um, it, it gave me that objective distance. A lot of times I'd been deep in negotiations, and it took me a five-year process, by the way, to, to finish this book. Uh, perhaps I enjoyed it too much. Uh, so uh, I was basically looking at myself in those interactions and evaluating the situation and saying, oh, okay, how, wh- how could have this gone better from my perspective and from the other person's perspective? What are the what are the things that went right? What are the things that uh, went wrong? Also, a lot of research that I did um, and covered some of things that I intuited, but I didn't have concepts or or terms for them like for instance this panic button effect uh, I, i'm not sure if you're familiar with that concept or not but it, it, it just hit me that wow you know this this thing existed out there i had no idea that it existed but now i'm aware of it and i feel like i'm a better person because of it well the new book is out uh, parash congratulations it's as you say it's taken you five years you're a your day job is as an entrepreneur. I assume you wrote this at the weekends in the evening. It's always nice to see a successful startup story, even if this is about a book. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. What else would you suggest people read? Uh, maybe a little bit of Adorno or Marcuse or a rent to go with your new book, uh, Exit Path? Well, you know, I, perhaps maybe an easier start would be to uh, start with the work of Adam Grant, whom I admire, and I was so lucky to have as an endorser uh, on the cover of my book. Um, uh, you know, he, he, the way he psychology and uh, economics, as well as, uh, you know, organizational behavior is it, just uh, brilliant. And his writing is so, so well. So I, if, if your readers haven't started uh, reading him, I would highly recommend Adam Grant. Also, Scott Belsky um, is a favorite of mine. There are so many great writers out there. So it's, it's a fantastic time for, for a book reader to, to be. X.